It's really weird seeing your background be something completely different. Like, I'm used to seeing, I mean, I guess, your bed. and My bed and my closet. Yeah, and I'm still seeing, like, those same things, but they're not your bed or your closet. It's my old bedroom. It is. It is. Yes, listeners, I am taking this call from our um, Oklahoma studio office here at the guest bed room, which used to be Brittany's room, and then was uh, Sydney's room, and then was my room, and is now the guest bedroom um, at home, because I'm spending the week at our mom's, and while it may sound like to many that Brittany and I just do this for the opportunity to get free wine... That is you know, absolutely why we the do it. Whole reason. It's not the whole reason, but it's a really great benefit. <laughs> <laughs> so, safe to say, the wine I'm drinking I, is a lovely gift from one of our listeners, our mother. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not my same setup. Uh, there is not a desk in this room. Instead, there is a vanity, or as I called it earlier when I couldn't remember the word, a glam station or glam stage. And so there's not a place for you to put your feet under it. So I'm kind of straddling like I'm halfway doing a crab walk, but (laughs) here we are. So it's a little different, a little uncomfortable, but I got this gorgeous view of the backyard to my right and um, a mirror in front of me that the iPad is sitting in front of. So (laughs) I can not only see myself as we usually do when I look at the iPad, but see myself staring above myself, peering it's just a very uh, very vain vanity setup, if you will. Okay, narcissist. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a very interesting setup for sure. And you mentioned that you got your wine from a listener. I today, um, long day at work, don't need to go into that. But I didn't have time to go to the store. And normally I'll go to Total Wine, get my mix six. Totally didn't happen today. So instead, I was like, oh, shit, I need wine. I don't have time to go anywhere. Well, you know what? Thank God there's about 101 delivery options. So I hopped on to Amazon Prime or like the Prime Now app where it'll deliver Mm -hmm. your groceries in two hours. And I was like, I'll take that wine. I'll take that wine. Because obviously, you have to get enough to where you get free delivery. So I'm not. So I'm just doing tip instead of delivery and tip. Is it essentially like the wines, any of the wines you could find at a Whole Foods? Yeah. Nice. It's amazing. And then I put all of the wines into my new wine fridge because I'm a bougie bitch now. Okay. So this previous weekend, Brittany, Sydney, and I, we were all together in Dallas visiting Brittany. And after Sydney left, Brittany and I decided to do one of our favorite things to ever do, which is go thrift storing. And we found out that there is a Goodwill in Dallas that is so big, I don't know if it's the flagship Goodwill or not, but it very well could be. (laughs) And it had everything under the sun. I got myself a bread maker, like one of those dump the ingredients in. It needs it. It proofs it. It rises it. It even bakes it. It punches it down. Does all the things you'd want. Ten bucks. Amazing. Did you use it? Oh, I've made like three loaves of bread so far, and it's been like three days. Why haven't you sent me a single picture? I specifically asked you to send me a picture, Tyler. I I, ha- I have to make one tonight for one of Mama's friends, so I'll send pictures of that one. Okay, and you're bringing me one too, or I'm not giving you your salsa. We'll see. Anywho, at the next thrift store Brittany and I went to, it was not a Goodwill, it was a local one in Dallas, and we're looking, Brittany's looking for a, a printer, 
fun fact, she found a $300 printer for $3. And then she sees this thing, says, oh, what's that? And I walk over and I say, is that a wine fridge? And we found a wine fridge for $30. And I graciously was like, Brittany, you can have it. And And so Brittany now has a wine fridge. I do. It only fits six bottles, but you know what? And one temperature. But you know what? It was $30 and not $200. So I am a very Mm -hmm. happy camper. It was was great. It was exactly what you want out of a thrift store trip. Yes, it really was. Um, Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And my car is just loaded down with secondhand crap right now. But it's not crap. It's secondhand gold. Secondhand treasure. Yeah. <gasps> That's the thrift store I'm going to open. Secondhand treasure. Promise you it already exists. It totally already exists, but that doesn't mean you can't open it too. Oh my God. I could open one and it'd be cheeky and call it one man's trash. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Listener, why don't y'all trademark that for me? I don't know how to do it. <laughs> well, um, thank you everyone for listening to last week's episode. If you haven't, hop on over. We did uh, something a little different than we normally do. We got pretty serious for last week's episode. We did. We talked about riots. We talked about the gay rights movement. We talked about Black Lives Matter. And it was just one of those episodes where we were faced with a moment in time and an opportunity to really lean in and educate ourselves and help teach you guys what we learned. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. We've been receiving some messages from some listeners and we just want to say thank you. We really appreciate your kind words. We do. And it was it was a great opportunity for us to really dive in, to learn more. And it was also I think a really great forum to have that conversation. It's a conversation that a lot of people feel uncomfortable having because it's not something that they live with every day. And I know for us, it was an opportunity to really dive into being uncomfortable and getting uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. And I hope for a lot of our listeners, it was that opportunity for you too. Yeah. And we were definitely very vulnerable. I think we're vulnerable a lot of the times, but in that episode, I mean, we both started crying. So like, there you go. Um, I mean, yeah, (laughs) that happened. And one of the things that we've um, set out to do is to have more impact than just our words, just our stories. Having a conversation and learning is hugely important, but I think it's also important to utilize the resources you have to make a physical impact. So one of the things we've been doing is we're donating all of our June Patreon proceeds to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Brittany and I will then also be matching it. And as well as any donations that we receive through PayPal, if you're not a member of our Patreon community. And so since this episode is going live on the 30th of June today, if you're listening to it when it comes out, is the last day if you would like to contribute and help donate to this incredible cause, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They provide legal defense lawyers to people who are wrongly accused or have had their civil rights um, basically tampered on um, to help them have support and have the legal defense that they should. So it's a really great program. And if you're interested in donating to that check out our patreon check out becoming a member of that or 
we are also accepting donations uh, via PayPal. You can just send them to bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and we will also be matching anything that comes through directly to PayPal. Yeah, we'll be anything that uh, we receive from you guys. Brittany and I are going to double that. And if you haven't already, be sure you have subscribed to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify, Pandora. I don't know if you can subscribe on Pandora, but Apple Play. Oh, no, it's Google Play. Apple Play. What is wrong with me? I don't know. Apple Podcasts, Apple Play. Apple's taken over. (laughs) We're on all the things. Just make sure you've subscribed and you'll get notified of those new episodes. All right. And with that, Tyler, what is today's topic? Well, today's topic is actually pretty special because it's a pretty special day. It's June 30th. And um, I know a lot of our listeners and myself and Brittany are very excited for something tomorrow. And that is new episodes of Unsolved Mysteries coming to Netflix July 1st, 2020. Y'all, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, that's tomorrow. There's going to be new episodes of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, at least for American listeners and American Netflix users. If you're not in the U.S., maybe you have it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to get a VPN and just you know, log into that American <laughs> Netflix. We don't have any sponsors that are those, but, you know, if we did, I could tell you all about them. But anyway, tomorrow, Unsolved Mysteries back with new episodes. Brittany and I grew up on this show. Yeah. I feel like my childhood was partially narrated by Robert Stack. And I mean, listen, y'all. One of my first memories of Brittany is her being terrified of the Chupacabra. I mean, yeah. And, I mean, he's a scary little dude. A uh, little alien motherfucker who sucks the blood of goats and maybe people. With his, like, a really long tooth. Like, it's terrifying. It's like this unicorn like horn long tooth that he would use and stab the goats and like suck the blood and there'd be the dead animals and dead people just lying on the sides of the road it's scary okay i don't think there was ever actually people he killed if he's real here's a fun fact i don't think he is but uh that was on an episode of unsolved mysteries probably i want to say like 1996 or earlier and maybe it was a rerun that we saw But it was when our dad was on a business trip to Puerto Rico, and Brittany was terrified that he was going to get eaten by the chupacabra. And I think I must have been, like, three years old (laughs) and, like, have maybe three memories in total from this age, and this is one of them. And then our dad didn't get his blood sucked dry from a little alien monster. Instead, we got t-shirts with dolphins on them as souvenirs. So, all in all... (laughs) You know, I I think I can safely say Unsolved Mysteries is one of the formative memories of my childhood. I'm honestly mostly impressed that you have more than one memory of being three or even any memories of being three. You know, that might be the only one now that I think about it. (laughs) So, yes, Unsolved Mysteries is coming back to Netflix and it's real. I'm really excited because it's also like... I don't know, when I think about whatever I watched on TV when I was a child, it was Rescue 911 and Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, um, Unsolved Mysteries, um, I Shouldn't Be Alive. No. I mean, yes, that. And then I guess I survived Worst Case Scenario on Lifetime. Anything that was about, like, 
being a young woman and having to fight for your life against all odds and being this badass bitch, that was my shit growing up. I was a powerful ass woman as like a young six-year-old boy. That is true. Oh, but also, I never said the topic is Unsolved Mysteries episodes. That's how we're tying it in. We just kind of went on a tangent about how much we love Unsolved Mysteries, but because it's coming back tomorrow, we thought, what better way to rein it in than by doing some cases that are intense from some episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Yes, and just to make it clear, we love Unsolved Mysteries the show, not the reality. Nobody loves Unsolved Mysteries. well... I mean, when it's things that are like, ooh, that's interesting, yes. When it's things of like, oh, fuck, that's tragic. Less. Less. So, with that, I'm ready to get into wine. I know you've already had a glass of wine. It's not fair. I've had a couple glasses. Wow, so you're going to be trashed. We had wine with dinner. Mm, That's fair. But I'm ready to get into my wine. Can I tell you what I picked? Yes, tell me. Oh, also, but Brittany, before you get into your wine, listeners, if y'all hear um, a mysterious disembodied voice in the background, uh, the house is not haunted. Um, Sydney is just eavesdropping and getting the ultimate exclusive uh, listen on what our episodes sound like. It's true. Sydney is our sister. I'm pretty sure our listeners Hi. know that. <laughs> no. um, just in case y'all forgot, she's one third of the three. Yes, the three of us. The three amigos. But are you going to, like, stop preventing me from opening my wine? Because I haven't had two glasses of wine like you. And I would I like mean, to... You d- I'd like to have this wine. Can I, can I have this wine? Do you do. You do whatever you want. <laughs> I'm having my wine and feeling good. And about to about to get into next bottle. But tell me first, uh, who are you drinking? Who are you wearing? <laughs> so I'm actually really excited about this wine. I see it everywhere. It gets really popular every year around the summertime. And it is the Gérard Boutrand Côte de Roses Rosé wine from France. And um, if that sounded like a garbled, jammed, like mouthful of nothingness, it's the bottle that has a rose on the bottom. Oh, the the one that I kind of always see it and want to like dip it in ink and just start stamping shit. Yeah, the bottom of this bottle is gorgeous and it has a glass cork. So I've actually, um, I've had this wine before and I kept the bottle and I just refill it with water and keep it cold in the fridge because the glass cork always works. It goes in and out. Like you can reuse it. Oh, how much was the bottle? Because I kind of want to get one just for the bottle. So I mean, also the wine. Yeah, it's um, it normally is like fourteen or fifteen, but on Prime now it was only thirteen. So I got it a little bit cheaper, and I was like, "That's what I'm doing. That's the one." Hey. So this specific rosé, it is, you know, when you think about like Nice and that very beautiful Mediterranean beach weather, perfect heaven think about I mean, this all the times i've been to nice <laughs> and the mediterranean french coast but yes go on <laughs> so it is made with grenache syrah and senso grapes from the languedoc region of france and senso is a grape that we don't talk about a ton it's actually a very high yielding heat loving red varietal from france's southern rhone region and it's used in blends such as the chateau du pape and Coduron. Senso also makes light fruity varietal wines and fortified wines. And 
This, the region where it's grown is known for the delightful rosés and winemakers may blend the Cinso with Grenache, which is what they blended it with um, in this particular wine. So this rosé, it's dry, light, and slightly acidic. It has notes of some red fruits, such as strawberries and raspberries, with hints of citrus as as well as pear and melon. So... I have to figure out how to... There's like a plastic seal. And sometimes I'm worried... Or, 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 or. <laughs> no, God, don't do that. Okay, well, I can't sing Kiss from a Rose, so... No, you can't, because that's trademarked. Copyrighted. But anyway, it's... And I am not seal. <laughs> no. It's got like a plastic... You know when you open something and it's got like the perforated plastic where you just peel it off? Yeah. Yeah, it has one of those over this glass cork, you know, so people don't just, like, open the shit in the store. Um, so that's what that squeaky sound is that's happening. That's, God, that's not squeaky. That's just, I don't know, some crafty ASMR. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was kind of weird. All right, so I didn't grab my, oh, this is, I think I'm be able to get this out. I feel, okay, old people moment. I feel like I'm getting carpal tunnel really bad in my wrist because every time I've been like opening jars and shit today, it's been hurting. So this is probably not great for it, but I'm going to see if I can pop this cork and I don't know if it's going to make a sound, but we'll see. Pop, pop. That didn't make a sound at all. That made no sound. Oh, but it smells it sounded good. sounded like opening. It sounds good. It sounds like kind of the quintessential rosé. Oh, I just spilled a little bit on myself. I know. Splish, splash, making a splash. Oh my gosh, it's making on the it chair. Making crash. Thrash. Great. Now my desk chair is going to smell <laughs> like wine. <laughs> Probably already did. <laughs> All right. Well, my glass is poured. This smells amazing. It's uh, still dripping from where I spilled it. But uh, while I clean up my mess, Tyler, what wine are you drinking? So, the wine I'm drinking today, it is the 2016 Antigal Uno Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina. And this wine is a 90-point wine. It I looked it up. It's like a $14 bottle. So, pricier than I would pay, but I didn't pay for it. According to the back of this bottle, it is this one-of-a-kind Malbec with a very luscious black and red berry fruit. Um, And it's brightened by this very natural acidity and has these firm but ripe tannins. Wine words. It is barrel aged for eight months in both French and American oak. So it has a very deep oak flavor to it. It's not just kind of like one note. It's complex, if you will. And it has this very cedar and vanilla spice notes and a lingering long finish. Uh, The bottle, so Antigal says that it is perfect with red meat entrees, grilled vegetables, and semi-firm cheeses. And I also found a review on, uh, I think it was Vivino that I found this review on, and it was super detailed and said everything I could ever want. So I was like, "Mm, yes. They called this wine a sleeper alert, which they didn't explain what that meant, so... I don't know if it's one that's been known for a while, but is now coming up. If it means it needs to breathe, who knows? Maybe this wine has sleep apnea. No, Tyler. 
Tyler, a sleepler alert means it's something that people have been like sleeping on. Like it's really good and people haven't realized it yet. It's like they've been sleeping on it. Oh, I thought I needed to hook the bottle up to a CPAP. But (laughs) your, your theory makes more sense. Anywho, this wine, it's a sleeper. It is iridescent purple red ruby, has a clear edge, light body, long, heavy legs, just like me. Just kidding. I have short, heavy legs. Um, (laughs) Same. (laughs) Aromas of green sage, lavender, violet, plum, and blackberry. It has a kind of off-dried, juicy mouth of firm black plum, latent cherry, clove, and pepper. There's muted chalk minerality at the middle, and then small oak, roasted vanilla bean, and bitter dark chocolate, yet remains light as a feather, floating into muted clay dust in a medium close back of the teeth. What? I don't know. Uh, the after- <laughs> I don't know what that What means. did you even read? I got lost. It, it got too long. I stopped listening. I realized I was thinking about something else. And then I kind of zoned back in and know what we just said. But sure. I know. It's, Sounds good. I, I think Chaucer wrote this. Um, <laughs> but the aftertaste, it is the aforementioned bouquet. And it, pairing is stay in place quesadillas and a side salad. So quarantine quesadillas, which a quarantine quesadilla in my book is a tortilla with some cheese that you microwaved and you don't tell a damn person about because you're in quarantine and what the fuck else are you going to do? So I guess this pairs well with that, with shame eating. With whatever you want to eat. There shouldn't be anything called shame eating, Tyler. Listen, you haven't seen me take down this pantry full of food while I've been here. It's been (laughs) shame eating central. (laughs) You're just sitting here. You're like, oh, my God, it's a pantry that's full. It's all the things I don't have at home. I don't know. Someone else went braved the grocery store. <laughs> um, but also, the coolest thing about this wine is it has this little um, this little decal, little medallion. Oh, um, yeah. Accoutrement. What's the brooch, maybe? The, the thing old ladies pin that hipsters think is cool again yeah that's a brooch i don't know it has one of those on it it's this like metal one also mama's wine opener is one of those electric like so i already took the cork out because i could not find the other wine opener (laughs) and i didn't think y'all wanted to hear the industrial revolution happening into the mic (laughs) Oh oh my gosh yes okay I need to drink. Brittany, grab your glass. It's cheers in time. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, that's intense. Wow. You know, I heard uh, one of the other reviews I read said it was like like a drier or a heavier, I don't remember what the way they said, uh, Pinot Noir. And I mean, uh, I guess uh, very much heavier. Very intense flavor. One of those punch you in the jaw wines. And it's good. It definitely has those berry flavors without being like, uh, here's your ambrosia salad. And I can definitely see the minerality, the chalk, the clay that uh, the reviewer talked about. It is a very complex wine. I mean, I think any wine that you can taste the layered berries, but also oak, but also minerality is going to come across as a lot more complex and taste a lot more expensive than most other wines you have that might be in its price range. So this is great. It tastes like very expensive wine. 
Um, it's it's a lot. It's definitely one that probably would be pair really well with food. Drinking alone might be a little intense, but I promise you, once I'm one glass in and we're full on trucking along, I'm not going to give a damn care in the world. <laughs> um, I can't remember if I've had that one before, but I- I've seen the bottle and it sounds really good. So this rosé is delicious. It's so refreshing. I very much get those tastes of strawberry and melon. It's a little bit sweeter than some rosés. So it it says it's dry and it is, but it's definitely not as dry as some of the French rosés that I've had. So I'm going to give you guys a tip that the sommeliers who are listening, if you guys listen to us, hey, how's it going? But you may cringe a lot when I tell you this, but you know what? Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And you know what I had to do? I had to quickly cool off this wine because the bottle sat here while we were talking and it just warmed up too much. And to me, rosé is truly one of those wines I need it to be at its proper temperature. If it's warm, like that's really gross to me. I also don't like that when it happens to a white wine, but I'm much more willing to drink it. Rosé, I'm like, no, like this needs to be right. So, I mean, I think rosé is, I know the proper temp of a rosé is, I'm pretty sure a little bit in between most whites and reds, but for me... I prefer rosé to be, like, colder. Like, not icy, obviously. That'd be too cold. But, like, it, when I pour it into the glass, that glass better become, like, frosted almost. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And it's funny you say iced. That's not what happened, but it's kind of what happened. So, basically, if you've got a glass of wine that you need to cool down really quickly, take another cup, fill it with ice, pour the wine over the ice and kind of swish it around, stir it around a little bit. You don't want that ice to melt. So this is not something you're wanting to do for very long, but you want to shake it and agitate it and it cools it off really quickly. And then you strain it really fast, get the ice out, put it back into your glass and that wine's going to be chilled to perfection. Maybe even a little too cold, but a little too cold in my opinion is better than too warm. I mean, in life, I agree. Also, if you want to be a Pinterest mom or a BuzzFeed Tasty mom, just pop in some frozen grapes and share with all your wine friends while you needlepoint and just drink a lot of wine. Honestly, that sounds fucking fun. It does sound really fun, actually. I want to get wine drunk and learn to needlepoint. I want to be one of those people that has those pillows that are like a cute scripty font that says like, get the hell out of my house. Yeah, although needlepoint while drunk sounds a little bit dangerous. I wear I'll wear ten thimbles. <laughs> so this wine I definitely recommend. It's a really good rose, so it's not We have another guest. <laughs> okay, well can the other guest not tip her glass? Hello all. Hi listeners. It's the mom. So Mama's here. So listeners, if you heard this loud uh no wine. If you heard this loud clinking noise, wow. <laughs> this is none of Margaret's idea. Tyler, you should leave Listeners, this in. Mama can't hear Brittany, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot she can't hear me, which is why she wasn't answering me. Mom needs a pour. to participate, and then mom will go away. <laughs> mom is stealing my wine. I'm pretty sure she already gave you two glasses of it. There we go. A nice two ounce pour. <laughs> Say when. That's good. 
There you go. You drip on my carpet, you'll die. I'm not going to drip on the carpet. <laughs> Bye, listeners. Bye, Mama. All right. Well, that was our mom. Um, this is apparently a family affair episode, and I um, I'm pretty sure you all heard what I just heard. And if Tyler drips wine in the carpet, he's gonna die. And that was just said and captured on our murder podcast. So this episode could be evidence. If it's my last, I mean, (laughs) but you know what? Mama listens to every episode. She knows better than that. She knows this is recorded. That's an evidence trail. We don't do that in this family. (laughs) That's true. So I feel like I was making a point. Oh, I was talking about the rosé. I was was just talking about the Mm, wine. I was just going to say, like, it was like the last point before I'm like, hey, let's talk about our cases. But this rosé is not just a pretty bottle. Buy it because the bottle is adorable and you can use it and it can be everything you want. Side note, I saw someone, you know how you can, and I don't know how to do it, have not successfully done it, but how you can cut glass and like make like a candle or like a drinking glass out of like wine bottles and stuff. Mm-hmm. You just need like cold water, string, soaked in alcohol, a lighter. Apparently it does it all for you. I get the physics. I'm too scared to do it because I know that glass is just diving straight for my carotid. <laughs> um, I tried it and I couldn't get it to work. But I saw someone have like six of these bottles and make herself a whole set of glassware. And I kind of want to do that. Absolutely. Yes. But the point I'm trying to make, it's not just the beautiful bottle. This is a really good rosé. I do highly recommend it. It is categorized as a dry rosé. I would say it's more of a, it's not as sweet as a semi-dry, but it's sweeter than a lot of the dry rosés that I've had. And it does have a Mm -hmm. little bit deeper of a peach color. It's not completely, um, because some are almost like transparent. Yeah. Well, I'm glad your wine is delicious, and it's not just a pretty face. People say that about me all the time. I'm not just a pretty face. Um, But you have your wine. I have my wine. We have our topic. I'm interested to see, of all of the tens of billions of cases that Unsolved Mysteries has done, or sometimes it feels like that, what is the one you found? What is your intense Unsolved Mysteries case? Well, this was difficult to pick. So... I really leaned in to the unsolved and the mysterious aspects of these cases. And the one I picked today is the mysterious murder of Catherine Corzilius. This case first aired on the May 22nd, 1998 episode, which was season 10, episode 7. I also used an article from Morbidology by Emily Thompson, which is another podcast, I believe, like podcast and blog. And then an article from the Unsolved Mysteries wiki page, which if you if you've never looked at that wiki page, oh my gosh, it has like every single case they've ever covered. And it's amazing. Oh, if you want to fall into a true crime Wikipedia hole, the Unsolved Mysteries wiki is where it's at. I'm surprised we have not used that to find cases more often. I don't necessarily use it to find cases, but I've definitely used it for research. So here's some background on Catherine Corzilius. She was born in 1989, and she was the six-year-old daughter of Paul Corzilius, who was the tour manager for John Bon Jovi, and Nancy. And Catherine was involved in ballet, swimming, and soccer. 
She lived with her family in Elder Circle, which was a small gated neighborhood in West Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. She's local. Local for you. So Elder Circle was this very quiet and safe street consisting of really grand houses, the beautiful manicured lawns. The street names were chiseled into large stones that were like on top of brick pillars. So this was one of your very idealistic neighborhoods. Super safe. I just rolled my eyes into until I became a McMansion myself. But I mean, if it's if it's West Austin, uh, yeah. Yeah. She booge. This was like towards Bee Cave and everything, like just gorgeous hill country. Catherine would often play with the children of her neighbors there in the neighborhood on the street. And her friends would describe Catherine as a very kind and generous little girl. And by her friends, I mean probably their parents because she was six. And I don't know if six-year-olds would say things like kind and generous. Maybe they would. I don't know. I haven't talked to a six-year-old in a while. I mean, if they're six-year-olds from West Austin, they are probably sitting there being like, Oh, yes, quite a generous little girl. I mean, she brought me this 1849 Chateau Pinot for my sixth birthday. It was quite, you know, how six-year-olds talk. Are you telling me six-year-olds mumble incoherently? Yes, I am. Yes, they do. (laughs) Have you met a six year old? (laughs) I I have, actually. Uh, So maybe you were more accurate than I first gave you credit for. So sorry for not believing you. It's a lesson you should have learned a long time ago. On August 7th, 1996, Catherine, her mother Nancy, and her brother Chris, who her, her brother was like nine years old, they went out to run some errands. So it's just your basic day. And it also happened to be her dad, Paul's birthday. So he was actually out of town working in his office in New York City. And while they were out, they wanted to pick up a present for him. So then the family gets back to Elder Circle. And Catherine, who was probably just like ready to get out of the car, was like, hey, mom, can I pick up the mail at the mailbox and then walk home? And so this was one of those neighborhoods that doesn't have mailboxes in front of the houses. They've got like a station where everyone's mailbox is found. And it's like just Mm -hmm. like right down the street. So Nancy is like, sure, you can totally do that. She had done it before. She dropped Catherine off by the mailboxes. And Catherine, so this circle, elder circle, is just that. It's a circle. The road goes one way, and then there's kind of a walking area the other. So Catherine was going to take this shorter walking distance, and Nancy and Chris would take the car home and drive around the other way, and they would just meet at the same place after Catherine checks the mail. This is also something that really gave Catherine this feeling of responsibility and independence. And yes, she is six, but it was a very exciting thing for her to do. You know, she was in charge of checking the mail. That was her job. She's going to get it done. And she liked that opportunity. Well, and also this is what, 1995? Six. 1996. I mean, we say that a lot. We we often, I will hear ourselves giving the excuses of like, oh, well, this is the 70s or oh, well, this is the 90s. But honestly, even now, I mean, I remember being six and being like, I'm going to go walk to the park. Like, it's such a strange age and it's such little actual like independence mm-hmm. that, you know, if I had a six-year-old now and they were like, 
I'm gonna go get the mail, and then I'll have the driver take me the rest of the way. Not that she had that, but, you know, rich, bougie neighborhood. Feels very safe. Feels very much in its own bubble. I could absolutely see that, not just for 1996, but today as well. Yeah, and the mailboxes were only about a fourth of a mile from her house, so it's a really quick walk. When Nancy dropped Catherine off at the mailboxes, it was 4 p.m. However, after Nancy and Chris get home, they unload the grocery, or like, I don't know if they went grocery shopping. They went on multiple errands. They unload the car from their errands. And after a few minutes passed, Catherine still had not returned home. And so Nancy was like, Chris, go to the mailboxes and get your sister. But Chris was not able to find Catherine. And so he returned back to the house, very distraught, very upset, crying, saying he cannot find Catherine. Like, mom, I can't find my sister. And again, his sister's six. He's nine. He's freaking out because he's like, this is, I'm protecting my little sister. Like, where'd she go? Mm -hmm. So Nancy at this point, she's like, okay, well, this is weird. Let's go see if Catherine went over to one of her friend's houses. So they go over to the neighbor's house to see if Catherine's there. But a young boy opens the door and says that he hasn't seen Catherine. And so it's at that point when Nancy and Chris are getting really worried and they just have this gut feeling that something terrible has happened. Nancy and Chris get into the car and they they stop walking on foot like they're going to drive. They're going to go find her. And within minutes, they found Catherine lying face down in the asphalt there on Elder Circle. It had only been 15 minutes since they'd last seen her, and she was only six houses down from her own. Nancy noticed that Catherine was unconscious, but she was still breathing. And she okay. and she made the decision, knowing that it was risky, but she was like, okay, I can make this drive to the hospital. So she picks her up and makes the 25-minute drive to Seton Medical Center. I mean, that can also 100% understand, you know, being a parent or being anyone and having the mindset of, well, I'm here with the car. If I call the ambulance, they got to take the time to get here. And that's about the same amount of time it would take me to get there. So, yeah. So she took that risk and, and picked Catherine up. Catherine arrives at the hospital still unconscious. She had suffered a fractured skull. And she ended up being put on a ventilator to keep her breathing, but she was brain dead. It didn't matter that she was in a coma or that she was unconscious. She was completely brain dead. Catherine never regained consciousness and died later that day. So from the very beginning after this happened, a lot of people assumed that Catherine was a victim of a hit and run accident. Even though there were no skid marks or road debris or anything of the sort around Catherine's body, when her neighbors were interviewed, they told police that they didn't see her or hear anything unusual that day. And with Elder Circle being this really quiet street and like neighborhood with not a lot of car traffic, I mean, it's literally a circle and it's in a neighborhood. It's not a main street. Many were like, well, how could a hit and run have even happened? We would have heard something. We would have seen something, but no one saw anything. And the road that Catherine was on was a little bit curvy, again, because it was like this large circle. 
A driver who had been on this road still would have had plenty of time to see Catherine and about a tenth of a mile uh, to stop. So it's like wherever she was on this circle, there's a big amount of space for them to see her and stop. So a hit and run doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, when you told me when you first were saying what happened, I assumed she was a hit and run. But yeah, if she had been hit, People would have heard something. And if there's a tenth of a mile viewing distance around these curves and stuff, I mean, that's 500 feet. That's a football field and a half for us Americans who know that distance. But like, there there is no way on a curved road you're going to be going any faster than, what, 30, 35? You shouldn't be. I mean, shit, that feels... I mean, you shouldn't be. It sounds like it's a neighborhood, so go 25. But let's say they weren't but even going that fast no and if it was something where maybe someone backed out of their driveway and saw her or and didn't see her i mean she would be in their driveway not like on the side of the road kind of thing right so her family did not understand first off why she was found on the part of elder circle that she was so think of elder circle again like a circle We've got the mailboxes on one end and then almost directly on the other side, but not like completely halfway. That's where their home was. So you've got this shorter distance that Catherine was going to walk to the house and the longer distance of the circle that Nancy and Chris had to drive home. Catherine's body was found on the road in this longer circle, like the same way that Nancy and Chris had driven back to the house not on the walking area where she would have gone. It was the opposite direction of what she would have been doing after getting the mail. So almost like she'd been getting the mail and someone's like, oh, I'll drive you back to take the driving pathway. Potentially. Nancy last saw Catherine walking towards the house. But like I said, her body was found along the route that Nancy and Chris had driven, which was about a half a mile away from the mailbox. So further away from the mailbox than the mailbox was in the other direction to their house. The medical examiner's report seemed to just add to this mystery because he determined that Catherine suffered no other broken bones or internal injuries that would be consistent with any type of car accident. In addition to her head injury, he found abrasions on her left shoulder, the small of her back, her right hip, and her knees. But if Catherine had been hit by a car, she would have sustained fractured legs or ribs or some other type of impact injury. There'd be more than just abrasions. Yeah. When she was found, she was not found on the road like leading towards her house, but the road away from her house. So really just like wrong side, wrong direction. Everything was very off. And the medical examiner believed that she had either jumped, fallen, or was possibly thrown from a moving vehicle. One of the theories proposed by investigators was that she tried to hold onto the back of Nancy's car on the ride home, but fell off. So this is a very weird theory, number one, because why? But this would explain why her body was found on that part of Elder Circle. And I could see a six-year-old logic being like, I want to hop on the car. And write it. I mean, how many times as a kid, or have you known kids if you didn't do this yourself, 
you know, you someone drives like a Suburban or something that has the, the little foot thing on the side where you, you know, step on to get in the car. Yeah. And you, you want to like stand on that and hold on to the roof while it drives. Her getting the mail and being like, I'm going to hop on the back of mom's car while she drives. That's going to be so much fun. I That totally makes sense to me. Well, Catherine's family, they did not buy into this theory. So they hired a private investigator, Barbara O'Brien. And one of Barbara's main points, which I'm like, yep, no, that makes sense. And you're going to totally be like, oh, yeah, as soon as I say it. She said that it was extremely hot on this August day in Austin, Texas. So we're talking 90 to 100 degrees. So that car is really hot on the outside. It is, especially they have been out. They have been running errands, parked in parking lots. The outside of Nancy's car is really hot. So Catherine's hands would have shown some type of burn. And it would have been really difficult for her to hang on to that car. Yeah, no, that is such a fair point. But also one thing I thought of is, I don't care how noise-canceling your car is, you're going to notice a something, someone jumping onto the back. Yeah, or even hanging onto it somewhere. And like, Nancy's car only had a couple of places where Catherine could have even theoretically hung onto there was the bar on the top of the car, which again, she's not going to get up there, and the back door handle. But if you think about it, if the car is moving and she's like holding onto the door handle and like letting it kind of like pull her along, she's going to open the door. That That's yeah. that's how that works. And also, just to add to more reasons why this is an, an impossible theory Catherine's left thumb was broken and it was in a splint. So it would have made her really, it would have made it really difficult for her to hang on to anything. And also Nancy, like you were alluding to, Nancy would have been able to see her. Nancy would have seen Catherine in the rearview mirror trying to hang on to the car and failing. Yeah. So Catherine's family instead believes that she was abducted and murdered. There's a vacant lot about 30 yards from the mailbox, and it's in the direction of their home. And this vacant lot may have provided the only clue that investigators had. A few days after Catherine's death, investigators brought a canine unit into the lot. The canines, dogs, don't know why I call them canines, the police dogs, they picked up her scent in the lot, but they lost it as soon as they got out of the area. So this tells us that the lot may have been the point where Catherine was abducted or maybe where her injury took place, but then that she was later moved to where she was found on the other side of the circle by her mom. So this theory suggests that she was walking in the direction of her house when she may have been abducted, when she may have come across someone. And Nancy also noted that when she found Catherine's body, It appeared that she had been laid out like she was positioned to be found. Her hair was smoothed down, her shirt was straight, her shorts were straight, and her her toes were pointed straight, and her sandals were still on. So even if she had been thrown from a vehicle or jumped out of the vehicle, they must have stopped to 
situate her to where it didn't look like sorry this sounds totally graphic but it's like she was laid out in a very nice way not in a way that you would picture a body if they had jumped out of a moving vehicle and hit their head yeah her placement how she was laying didn't look to be the result of something traumatic exactly so naturally Nancy is considered a possible suspect in that Catherine may have grabbed onto her car while it was in motion and fallen off at some point. But like we've already discussed, the family hired the private investigator and there's plenty of evidence that points away from that theory. By mid-August, investigators announced that they believed Catherine had been snatched by a predator and then hurled from a speeding car. But with no leads and no evidence to go on, Catherine's case eventually went cold. A year later, Catherine's neighbors in Elder Circle planted a tree and placed a plaque in her name. And her family still hopes that someone will come forward with new information or frankly, any information. But as of yet, no suspects have been found or identified in this case. The incident was also immoralized by singer John Bon Jovi in the song August 7th, 415, which was the date and time of Catherine's death. Because if you remember, her father Paul was John Bon Jovi's tour manager and is now a board member for John Bon Jovi's foundation. Wow. Catherine's brother Chris later became a senior deputy for the Travis County Sheriff's Office but sadly, he passed away in a car accident on March 18th, 2020, at the age of 32. Oh, wow. That was not that long ago. No, that was very recent. And Catherine's case has gone completely cold. There have been no new leads, no information. And this is one of those cases that is so difficult because it's not like there's only a little bit to go on. There's practically nothing to go on. They yeah. don't even know, like, like her whole, this whole situation is still theories. And just because the police announced that they do think a predator kidnapped her and threw her from a vehicle, there's not really evidence to support that either. So everything seems to be able to be explained away, but nothing can be explained. Yeah, I mean, they're still trying to figure out what happened, and they're so far away from really figuring out who did that. Well, and I think one of the reasons why this is such a well-known case from Unsolved Mysteries, not only because of the John Bon Jovi song, but also because it's one of the really scary ones. Because mm -hmm. she was only away from her family for 15 minutes, and... We have no idea what happened. Like, her parents at least found her body. They were able to bury her and celebrate her life. But they have no idea what happened in the last 15 minutes of it. And they have no idea what happened to their little girl. And yeah. it just, it's, it's so heartbreaking. Catherine would be, almost like, what, 35 this year? It's just... No, she was born in 89. Oh, sorry. I did it the wrong way. She would be turning 31. Yeah. So, she'd be 31. She'd be two years younger than you. I know. And it's just so heartbreaking and scary. These cases that 
are so unexplained. And of course, the people of the neighborhood were very scared. They didn't know, like, was there a predator out there? So people weren't letting their kids go outside. They were trying to protect them because there were no answers. No one knew what was going on or what had happened to Catherine. So that is the mysterious murder of Catherine Corzelius. So Shit. I know it's one where at first when I was looking this up, I was like, well, there's not a ton of information on this. But again, like I said, that's what makes it so scary. And I'm like, yep, this is yeah. perfect. This is what I think is the epitome of a lot of the unsolved mysteries cases. It is truly an unsolved mystery. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is that it, in every way is not like an interesting something we know very little about it's a we know close to nothing this is so far from being solved this is very much a mystery so yeah yeah all right tyler what unsolved mysteries case did you pick the case i picked is the murder of diane harlan and the disappearance of hugh harlan so sources i used unsolved.com which is the unsolved mysteries website i used two articles from the unsolved mysteries wiki uh, the article for diane harlan and the article for hugh harlan an article from medium.com by cat lee and then an article in the tribune which is the san luis obispo california newspaper and i couldn't find an author to that article so if you wrote it let me know so this case, it first aired on Unsolved Mysteries on the April 6th, 1994 episode. So Diane Harlan, she was 43, and she was married to this quirky fisherman guy uh, named Hugh Harlan. He was 51, and the two of them lived in Morro Bay, California. Hugh, he was a native to Morro Bay, and he was self-employed as a fisherman, and he did his work kind of when he felt like it when he wanted to or when they needed money then he'd go out do his fishing bring back stuff but it it was kind of as he wanted to basis and during his free time when he wasn't working he was just volunteering to help neighbors out and just helping others really that was kind of his thing he was known for he was a super kind super helpful guy and i mean he, he he was a weirdo he might be the kind of guy who has a collection of, like, satellite antennas or something. That's not in my case. I just made that up. But, like, that kind of weird and quirky. Like, hooked up or just, like, in the garage? Like, just in the garage. Like, would collect weird things. I don't know. Might have the largest collection of mouse traps in North America. Weird shit like that. That's kind of like, oh, that's eccentric. But not anything that's like, oh, he had... A- you know, 10,000 calf fetuses in jars hanging around. Like, not that kind of weird. Oh my god, that was disgusting. That's a very big difference than mousetraps. Well, that's what I'm saying. He's the kind of, like, atypical and quirky who's described as quirky and not described as, like... Scary? A fucking haunted house. (laughs) But um, he's, he's eccentric. Um, and the neighborhood, like, that's kind of how he's seen. But again, he's super helpful, super kind. He got along really well with everyone. And so his eccentricities are mostly seen as just him living his life how he wanted to. 
I assume most of his eccentricities were probably like, I don't know, fishing related or like him doing him. Maybe not collecting mouse traps or satellites or cat fetuses. Thanks for the clarification. You know, that's what I'm here for. Um, so anyway, Hugh and Diane, they're both, well, like Diane herself is also well known as being a little eccentric, but the way they had relationships with other people were very different. Hugh, again, was this very kind person. He liked his fishing and had a lot of friends, had a big social circle, but Diane was a lot less so. She had a lot fewer friends, a much smaller social circle, and she also had become known as the dog lady. She was obsessed with dogs. Not just like, oh, dogs are cute, I have a couple, or, you know, I I have a bunch of plates and clocks that have dachshunds on them or whatever, but no, she was obsessed with dogs. People in town knew her as the dog lady. Um, excuse me, I love how you decided to pick out dachshund and all those types of dogs you decided to list about obsession. Uh, yes, I'm obsessed with my dog. It's okay. But you're not obsessed like Diane is. See, that's the thing is, there's a lot of people who love dogs and love dogs, like everything in their house is dogs. She's further than that. Like, enough so for this town of people who are probably like, this is my, like, Belgian Charmise. I don't know if that's the type of dog or what. But walking around and like, quote unquote, dog obsessed. And she's still known as the dog lady. And according to Hugh, she cared more about dogs than she did about him, her husband. At least he knew his place. Well, I mean, that's fair. I'm like, Max, Max comes before any of y'all motherfuckers who enter my life. (laughs) Like, I met Max first. Sorry. We have a relationship. Sorry, future husband who I'm like signing a house purchase order with that's not how you buy a house i've never done it before obviously <laughs> it's a house uh, po yeah no s- <laughs> <laughs> let me just put the shipping address in for my house um no uh you know yeah i'll sign that with a husband i won't sign that with max but if max had a job i would i just want max to be in one of those insta famous dogs who like pulls his own weight financially anywho they're known throughout the town as having a pretty stormy marriage um she spends basically all of the money he makes and he's a fisherman he doesn't make a ton and he's not always working yeah as i say she basically you already said he like doesn't work all the time he kind of does it when he needs to and so that really she's spending his money that's not cool yeah they're they're not wealthy and she's spending basically everything on stuff she wants to do and stuff that she knows will piss him off like she would take all his money and she would spend it on her dogs, her friends. She would give it to homeless people that were like needed money, which is great. But when you don't have any money yourself, maybe maybe don't give spend it on everything under the sun. Yeah, maybe don't give as much of it away. And she would even serve him dog food for dinner sometimes. And according to one rumor, and it is a rumor, she even one time baked it into a casserole for him. So it sounds like even though they're married, she fucking hates him. That is what it sounds like. So now we flash forward, or I guess flash to the date of October 13th, 1982. So on this day, there's this like cross-country meet that took place at Morro Bay High School, like cross-country like track running kind of thing. So a bunch of students doing their running thing 
obviously look at me. I was not a cross-country person. But this meet's taking place, and while it's happening, uh, the coach's wife, the high school coach's wife, she's walking along the beach because the high school's right there on the beach because it's California, and she spots a body lying under this, like, stand of trees on the beach. The body, it's the body of a woman, and she's in a pretty advanced state of decomp, so she's not able to easily be identified. But, even though she couldn't be identified, her cause of death was pretty obvious. She'd been strangled by this nylon dog leash that was laying nearby. Oh my god! Yeah. And also nearby, there was this, like, jade bracelet and a silver bracelet that were next to her. And... Authorities wanted to find out who who she was. They had no idea. So they released the little bit of information they had to the media, to the news, in hopes that someone would recognize someone. Someone would be like, oh, my, my sister's missing and she loves wearing jade and silver bracelets or something. Well, the dog leash, the bracelets, they seemed to a lot of people to point to Diane. And Diane had last been seen walking two of her dogs on October 2nd. And then at 6.30 p.m. on the 2nd, the dogs were seen running away from the very same spot that her body would be found. Or I guess the body would be found. Spoiler alert, it's her. Yeah, I mean, I think we all saw where that was going. Oh my gosh. No, wait, no one, like, reported that they saw her dogs just, like, running away, knowing that she is someone who loves dogs so much that she wouldn't let something like that happen? Like, isn't that, like, a giant red flag? Well, it was. And it was to the owner of the ranch that Hugh and Diane lived on. Um, he thought it was very weird that these two dogs that Diane loved more than anything and anyone came back without her at about 11 p.m. that night. So he mentioned it to Hugh, and he was like, yo, the the dogs came back without Diane. Like, what what the hell happened? But Hugh said he wasn't worried. He was like, oh, I mean, I'm sure it's nothing. Then a friend of Hugh's was talking to him and convinced Hugh to go talk to the police because the body that they'd found was just half a mile away from Hugh and Diane's home. Oh, shit. Both of ours had the bodies being, like, literally right by the house. Right there. This is what is so scary. Man, we have talked about it. Like, being killed in your own home or... Yeah, pour that. Drain it. But, like... Yep, it's 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 gone. Mama took a full glass, though. Remember. But, like, being killed in or near your own home, that's your safety bubble. Like, this is horrifying. Yeah. I'm like, that's that's the part of town that not only you know, but you, like, know. That's where you're comfortable. It may not be inside the four walls of your home, but that bubble outside of your home still is your home kind of thing. It is. Absolutely. And so this friend talked to Q and he was like, okay, you're right. I, I do need to go talk to the police. And he met with the investigators and this is kind of when he saw her bracelets up close and he recognized them and knew that they did belong to Diane. Yeah. 
And he claimed that she had not been back at the house for 12 days. He'd last seen her on October 2nd. But he said he really wasn't worried until he heard about the body. Right. That's when he started to get a little bit worried. And investigators obviously thought of him as, like, the prime suspect. Because, one, it's the husband. Two... He never reported her missing, and he hadn't seen her in 12 days. And also, it was pretty well known that they had a tumultuous relationship. You know, no matter how difficult your marriage is, I feel like if your wife were to disappear for 12 days, it is very mysterious that you're not reporting that. Well, that's the thing, is he said she would often leave for days at a time without telling him. Oh! And... He wasn't really worried about where she was because he thought she'd gone to either Colorado or to Orange County to visit her Swami, who is like her spiritual leader. And he said that she wanted to seek condolences over the death of one of her favorite dogs, um, this Afghan named Ratzel. And this was because Diane, who she said she could predict the future, she had a dream and the dream told her that if anything happened to Ratzel, then she would be next. She would also die. So he knew she was going through that emotional turmoil. And then during times like this, um, especially when she would, you know, claim to see these visions, she would go see her Swami. And she also left, you know, just out of the blue occasionally. So all those things put together, he's like, I didn't think anything of it. Um, okay, I actually get that. Like, that makes sense. If this was not something that was out of the ordinary for her behavior, then maybe it shouldn't have been so suspicious. To an outsider, though, it it still seems suspicious, but... I mean, I still think it's suspicious. And I know it's 1982, so, like, cell phones aren't a thing. But, like, your wife just deucing... But it, for 12 days and you're not worried, like... But if she's done something like that before, and if she's done something like that multiple times, at a certain point, you're not going to worry anymore. I mean, I guess so. And I guess if the situation is that happens, she's gone for three weeks, no one's seen anything, and she comes back, she's like, oh, yeah, I was in Orange County with Miss Swami. And it's like, okay. Especially if it's multiple times. I mean, I get it, but still, it's... It's suspicious. And there's a couple more things that make it a little, uh, I don't know. So when investigators asked Hugh about the day that he last saw Diane, he said that the dogs, they'd, you know, trotted home by themselves at 11 that night and they'd had their leashes on. But when they told him the information they had that she'd been strangled by the dog's leash or by one of the dog's leash... He abruptly just changed his statement and he said, oh, no, the dogs got home and they didn't have their leashes. And so him changing his story like that, going from like, oh, yeah, they came home, they had their leashes on. And they're like, well, she would strangle with a leash. He's like, I mean, without their leashes on is what I meant to say. They're suspicious. That's really suspicious. Yes. And... At that point, he asked for an attorney, and he did not want to be questioned any further. Which, I mean, I feel like, especially when we see it in TV and stuff, the person asking for their attorney always seems like, oh, mm-hmm, they did it, they're not going to answer anymore, they're asking for the attorney. And it's like, mm-mm, bitch, that's your damn rights. 
don't care if you did it, if you didn't do it, you ask for that motherfucking attorney. He should have asked for this attorney way before they he started telling them about what the dogs were wearing when they got back. Yes, and I feel like when you ask for an attorney, it's one of three situations. One, you know your rights and know you have that right, so you get your attorney. Two, you're scared, so you're like, shit, I need to get an attorney. Or three, you're guilty as fuck, and you're like, fuck, I need to get an attorney. And you know what? Ask for your damn attorney. Always have your attorney present, because you never know, um, you know, if the people that you're talking to investigating are looking for answers, or if they're looking for this to be closed. That's so damn right. It's, yeah. I mean, you literally think about the percentage of cases that actually go to trial, and the fact that if every case, not that this is a case yet, but if every case were to go to trial, the system would completely break down because they cannot fill that capacity of trials, yet that's our right. But then that's where plea deals mm-hmm. come in, and it's just such crazy fucked up shit. Oh, it's it's something like 90-something percent, like 90 three or 95 or 97 something in the 90s percent of cases don't actually make it to trial yep. because of different plea bargains or things like that or cases just being dropped that yeah i mean the system would be so overwhelmed just think of how stressed and overloaded court-appointed attorneys are now how much public defenders have 10 seconds for these people to try to be there for them and present their case and evidence to prove their innocence or i mean it's oh i could go on a very long rant about the public defender system and how underfunded and under-resourced it is and how there's fucking precincts that have had to make a gofundmes to be able to support this thing that we have a right to that we should literally be funding but that is a not even a discussion for another time. It's a discussion for now, but it is not my case. No, it's a continuous discussion to have always. Yes. So Hugh, he later said he thought police were wrong about pretty much everything. He didn't think that Diane's death was even a homicide. He said that he thought she probably died from an aneurysm. She'd sought treatment for them in the past, and she had medication for her aneurysms too, but she really wasn't taking her medication. So he thought that, you know, most likely what happened is she probably was out walking the docks and had an aneurysm and wasn't strangled at all. Maybe the dog's leash became unattached from them and was just lying nearby because the dog's leash wasn't found like wrapped around her neck oh i I think it was just found my source said nearby which i feel like if it was found on her body it would have said so right no that sounds like it was nearby but when uh you said she had been strangled by it i thought that meant there were marks on her neck well me too because it was saying it was that she was very obviously strangled. So I'm not 100% sure the state she was found in, um, but I do know that Hugh is, you know, a fisherman. He's not a forensic pathologist or a police officer who's dealt with um, murder victims before. So I'm like, "Mm, who am I more inclined to believe? You know, the medical examiner's report, 
or her husband. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. He's saying though that he's like, I don't even think she was murdered. I think she had an aneurysm. And police, they considered him a suspect, but they never charged him in connection with her murder. And as time went on, and they spoke to him more, and what little evidence they could gather, they later stated that they don't believe he committed the murder, but they felt like he knew more about it than he said so, and that there might have been some facts in the murder that he was concealing because he was scared. He was concealing facts out of fear. Yeah, which is a possibility. But then the case went cold. And then on November 1st, 1986, so four years after Diane's murder, Hugh, he borrowed some tools from a friend and headed up to San Simeon for a small construction job. Um, He finished the work and he headed out back to Morro Bay. He was driving his 1967 Chevy pickup truck. He headed out at like 1.30 and he was never seen again. What? So he just up and left? Well, he up and disappeared. Oh. He borrowed some tools from a friend, went and did a construction job. Because, you know, he's he does odd jobs. He helps people out and stuff. He borrows some tools, goes up, does it. And is like, all right, cool, it's done. Like, construction job's ready to go. And, like, I'm going back home. And that was last time anyone ever saw him. Oh, my God. Oh, wait, that's right. At the beginning, you said it was his disappearance. I forgot. I was just thinking about her murder. Yep. Dude, this is like Unsolved Mysteries times two. Oh, I know. That's one of the reasons I chose this case is it's a twofer. It's two Unsolved Mysteries in one. Nobody wants that. So Steve Matthew, who was uh, one of Hugh's friends, he got a phone call from this friend in Cambria. And this friend was telling him that they found Hugh's truck. It was sitting on the side of the road. And so Steve and another friend, Eddie Grimes, I don't know if Eddie is the one who made the call or just a third friend, but Steve and Eddie are going to go check out the car. This is Hugh's car. It's pretty recognizable. What's it doing sitting on the side of the road? Right. When they get to it, um, the hood is up, uh, but all of the doors are locked. And on the dashboard were Hugh's glasses sitting there. There was a tin of tobacco and a tin with ragweed pot that he regularly smoked. I don't know what the fuck ragweed pot is. Isn't ragweed? I I know ragweed. Like, that's like a... It's like a weed. Yeah. Like a... I would say a plant, but cannabis weed is a plant. But I think it's just like a... Like, uh, in my fucking garden kind of weed. Not like a in my fucking garden kind of weed. Right. Well, and it also gives a lot of people major allergies because it's one of the measurements, like ragweed allergies. So maybe, I don't know, listeners, there's someone listening to our podcast right now being like, oh my god, you dumb asses. You smoke ragweed pot because if you have ragweed allergies, it... It cures you. Or... I don't know what the hell it does. Or they're literally like... Or it's weed. Th- no, they're like, guys, ragweed is dandelions. Duh. I don't think it is. <laughs> it's, it's it's not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so he had ragweed, a tin of ragweed pot. What if it turns out ragweed's just like a brand? It's like Solstice. It's like, um, yeah, 
Ragweed. Wait, I'm sorry. TM. Where are you finding branded weed at this point in the early 90s? Or the late 80s? Well, it's it's late 80s. It is California, but you, you're right. Okay, you're right. Um, anyway, whatever. His glasses were there. Um, his tobacco tin and his ragweed pot tin. They're all sitting there on the dashboard. And also, his lunch, his sleeping bag, his backpack, the tools he'd borrowed... They're all still in the pickup. And again, the hood's up. The doors are locked. It's weird. Everything at this scene is pointing to he should be literally like sitting right there in the driver's seat. And he's not. The keys to the truck were also found just a few feet away. And also the, the fuel line on the truck, it had been removed. The fuel line was so, t- removed? Yeah. Someone had taken out the fuel line. Clearly someone has tampered with his truck a lot. Yeah. And I don't know enough about trucks to know if could someone have taken out his fuel line and he was able to drive a couple miles and then, oh shit, let me need to pull over. Or if he would have already needed to pull over and then the fuel line gets ripped out so he can't get away. I don't know. But um, he was reported missing um, when his truck was found on November 4th. And that day, the sheriff's deputies, they checked the area around the truck, and they did other investigations into his disappearance. And they combed a much larger area around the truck, like the woods, the forest, like trying to find any signs, but nothing was found. So one theory is that Hugh did, in fact, strangle his wife, and then he just on his own disappeared. His friends did say they believed he was more than capable of doing so, and that he'd left Morro Bay before, but he'd never peaced out and just disappeared from Morro Bay without telling anyone. Like, that was weird. He would have told someone. Also, the authorities don't think that he killed Diane. They think he knew more about how she died. Yeah. And knew more about whom the killer might be, but was too afraid to tell them but they don't think he did it yeah i mean that's interesting because like you were saying earlier the husband is often the first suspect but they just see him as someone who has information that he's not willing to give not necessarily a killer yeah so the theory they're working on is that a third party had killed diane and then done something harmed Hugh in some way four years later because he probably knew too much but that's interesting because why would they wait four years maybe they'd been watching him and he was showing signs that he wasn't going to be scared anymore I don't know well that's true I really don't know but to this day Diane's murder and Hugh's disappearance remain a mystery and if he's still alive Hugh would be 84 years old. That is my case. That is the murder of Diane Harlan and the disappearance of Hugh Harlan. Dude, like we said, a freaking twofer. These cases, I mean, I feel like we don't too often do cases that don't really have an ending. No, but... That are cold cases. Yeah, I agree. And it's like... We do do them sometimes, but they're definitely not the majority Mm -hmm. because, I mean, to be totally frank, 
there's no answer. And that's so frustrating. And it's human nature to want some type of answers, even if they're horrific. It's better than nothing. Exactly. And I think a lot of the times in cases we find the ones that don't really have an ending that are cold cases, unless they're pretty well known, there's not a lot of information for us to be able to tell y'all. No. You know, it's someone was murdered. This is how it was found. And that's kind of all there is. And so it's it's difficult, especially like in this podcast way to do it. But just the way that Unsolved Mysteries can take those cases that don't really have any information and collate the information that is there, dive into it and present the case in its entirety. And it still be a narrative you can follow and something that's gripping and interesting is incredible and then to even go further and see how many cases are solved due to unsolved mysteries the fact yes robert stack at the end saying if you know anything please call this number and people did people did like that was not a a gimmick or a part of the credits like that was something that gave people closure or in some cases where it's disappearances saved lives that's incredible and so unsolved mysteries coming back i'm so excited i know it's just i think the first six episodes are dropping tomorrow on the first i'm absolutely going to be watching them y'all know i don't watch a ton of tv but i'm gonna binge the shit out of these unsolved mysteries episodes you know this whole bringing back the 90s nostalgia i am all fucking for it i love it because, I, and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older and like all that shit that goes in with that. But it's just, I don't know. The world is so complicated now that sometimes when I think about like the revival of these 90s things, it's like looking back at simpler times. Even though when you look at it as a whole, it was not simpler times. But for me personally, it was because I was younger and I didn't have to worry about things. And now I'm an adult and all I do is worry that's my rant. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> the thing. That's It is simpler times, and that's why people say that, is because, you know, the simpler times you think about are the times when you were a kid or a teenager, and your worries were still worries and still real, but with the perspective you have now as an adult looking back, they're a lot more tangible and surmountable. And so it, it does feel like easier times and better times. Yeah. You know, the being a high schooler going through the trauma that high school brings is awful and is scarring. But when you're in your late twenties and thirties, you can look back and you very much have those rose colored glasses. Mm -hmm. Even if you're still accepting like these times were fucking horrible, you've learned from them and you're able to see, you know, how, how you've come from that and how you've grown and survived. And so I feel like that's a huge part of why, the problems we faced then were no less real and no less impactful and big as the problems we're currently facing. But we're able to look back and be like, you know, that's how I solved them. That's how they ended. And it does feel like easier, simpler times. And also the problems are ones that I feel like more often than now have right answers and wrong answers. Whereas now we're facing problems that don't have a right or wrong answer do you take the job and move across the country i don't know there's there's not a yes or no answer right 
you know, do you pick this person to meld the rest of your life with? I don't know. I mean, I feel like as you get older, the problems you face, the reasons they be- feel so much bigger is not necessarily that the problems themselves are that much more intense. It's just that they're a lot grayer. There's a lot less that you face with a, this is the right answer and this is the wrong. And even if it's hard to pick the right answer, that's there. I feel like a lot of the problems we face now, it's, I I don't know. Well, and it's also a lot about perspective. So to add on to the, there is no right and wrong, yes and no, it's a very personal decision with a lot of the decisions we make as adults. It's also the perspective. And when you look at a high school issue or, or like a youth issue as an older adult, you can see that as like, well, well, if it was now and I had to make that decision, the answer is obvious, but you learn that through mm-hmm. experience. And so I f- am fully confident that in 30 more years, I'll look back on the decisions I'm making now and have that perspective and be like, oh my gosh, this seems so obvious. I would pick this. And whether or not that's what I chose or if it's not what I chose, it's it's all about learning. And like we learn as we grow. And I've mentioned this before, but people are allowed to change their decisions and change their perspectives based on receiving more information. And when we grow and mature, we get more information. So mm-hmm. I don't like looking, this has turned into a really weird tangent, but like, I don't like looking at things as mistakes. I like looking at them as that was a growth opportunity. And no, ma- yeah. no matter what you decided, you learned something. It's very HR of you. Uh, but no, I, I a hundred percent agree. I don't really like to look at most of the things in my past, even if I look at them now and I'm like, cringe to the max yeah (laughs) i cannot believe i did that or even not even just cringe further than that just like actual shame which i i would venture to say shame is about the worst human emotion someone can feel yes because it's different i mean like it's different than guilt it's like guilt toppled with embarrassment and just this gut-wrenching, I fucked up and feel awful, and look what I did. Ooh, shame is yeah. horrifying. Sh- I mean, it is. But I will say, I think that hindsight is twenty twenty. That old phrase rings very true. Yep. And, you know, I like to look back and look at things as, like you said, a growth opportunity. Something that I learned from, you know, if I learned from it and it was the fucking worst decision I could have made, at least I learned and grew from it. And that helps. It a lot of times doesn't resolve what happened, but it's still something positive to take away. And um, I think with that, um, I don't know, this this became a uh, this became a motivational TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) about shame and your past and learning to grow (laughs) this is the human resources sort section of the ted talk this next payroll 
This is the human life portion of the podcast, but if you've enjoyed this episode, if you like listening to this podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really love seeing your five-star reviews, reading why you're enjoying this. Um, It's so humbling when people comment on like our relationship because Ty, like obviously we've had this relationship forever. So for us, it's just like, we're doing our thing, but I love people that can see us shine through our podcast. So thank you so much. And just rate and review. And uh, make sure to also like, and follow us. Uh, We are on all the social media platforms. We're not, we're not on like, google plus or if that's still a thing i don't think so but we're on face (laughs) we're on facebook instagram and twitter we're also on youtube if you're able to find that please don't look um but yeah facebook instagram twitter like us follow us uh that way you get to see all of our wines get to see fun pictures we post we post a lot of memes the memes are the best part uh but uh yeah i would say the pictures of us are the best part or of the wine Okay, well, all right. (laughs) Agree to disagree. (laughs) Um, With that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.